Hi, I'm Rachel Monteleone and welcome to Kittypedia, the podcast. I'm not an expert. However, I do speak with them with the view of providing you with expert information and advice to help you be the best parent that you can be. Together, let's give children the life they deserve and a positive future. Hi there. Well, if you're a parent who would like to find an easy way to help support your child in their education and to do better at school that doesn't have anything to do with supporting them in their homework or, dare I say, homeschooling, which, of course, is so 2020, then you're in the right place. Uh, Today, we're going to take a closer look at diet and what foods can help boost a child's brain function and growth concentration and even their memory to help explain what are the crucial brain foods children needs to boost their brain function and to share share her expert information and advice we welcome our special guest Susie Burrell now Susie is one of Australia's leading dietitians with two honor degrees in nutrition and dietetics and psychology and today Susie is going to share her expert advice on the best brain-boosting foods for children's brain development and cognitive function. Thanks for joining us and welcome back. How are you doing? Thanks, Rach. It's always so nice to have a chat. I always feel better after we've spoken. (laughs) It's the highlight of my week. So nice to see you again. Likewise. And, you know, in doing um, prep for for the chat today, I was thinking it makes total sense that the type of food that, you know, a child consumes really does determine how healthy their body is going to to be through their growth and and affect their future. But uh, in doing the preparation for today, I actually had no idea that our brain is one of the the, the first body's um, organs to absorb nutrients from the food we eat. Not every organ in the body does that, but the brain actually does. It does absorb nutrients from the food that we eat, which I found find in incredibly interesting. Um, and this, of course, can work for and against us depending on what it is that we're eating. So it's a little expansion on the saying, we are what we eat. Um, our children's ability to think and learn is likely to be affected by the quality of their diet. You know, like, what are your thoughts on this? I think we've known for a long time that Early childhood nutrition in particular is really, really important. We know that the brain develops rapidly in that first five years of life. But the human body is really smart. You know, it takes everything it needs and and makes sure that we're we're fueled for survival so that our liver has got a good store of glycogen and then that directly feeds the brain. And I think it's about 30% of our total daily calories go towards brain function. So in terms of performing well at school and being cognitively aware or in those early years when kids are doing a huge amount of learning and establishing those neural pathways. You know, good nutrition is important for all of our brains, but even more so for kids because of that huge phase of development and also because they're developing eating patterns that they'll maintain for a lot of their adult life. So it's really, really probably as as crucial as we can imagine. Yeah, and their little growing bodies, I guess, need all the help they they can get with lots of nutrients to assist in their their development. Um, And no doubt, I guess, you know, an essential part of uh, providing uh, a healthy and prosperous future for all kids is in the quality um, of the healthy foods and, and what it is they're consuming. Um, and, of course, they have to sort of nat- naturally be nutritious in order for them to be able to get the benefits. Um, so we're about to delve into what those benefits are uh, of a healthy diet. Um, but before we do, I'd love to just dig into this for a moment. If you could give us some insight into 
got the flip side of not providing kids with a healthy diet? And what does that actually mean for their brain development? Could you maybe just expand on this a little bit for a moment? 100%. It's really interesting because, you know, we've got that sort of first five years with them and it's the habitual behaviour that's such a strong predictor of long-term eating behaviour. So on one hand, there's the short-term consequences of a poor diet. So we know that a significant number of kids, for example, have low iron levels and that directly impacts language and speech development and cognitive development. And that often happens when kids are drinking too much milk and not getting enough lean red meat if they're a red meat-eating family. We know that if kids aren't getting enough dietary fibre, so from having a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables and whole grain cereals, that they're more likely to be constipated. So these are some of the presentations that a parent might present with in a child who's not eating overly well. Now, the truth is that those things can be improved and fixed relatively quickly, but the long-term impact of that is that if kids don't learn to eat their meat, to eat their lean veg- to eat their vegetables, to eat their um, omega-3-rich fish, you know, by the time they're five, the research would suggest it's going to be really hard to get them to ever have it in significant components. And when we, we take a step back and think, right, well, during that time, all this brain development's happening, um, inflammatory pathways are being established by having access to good fats, um, all of those key learning times, it's indirectly linked to those really strong nutritional practices. So I would say you're 100% right that getting them right really young in those ages between one and four and one and five is really, really crucial because that's when you're going to make the biggest impact, not only on those short-term issues that can present with kids and their feeding, but long-term in laying down good habits for life because we know if we're getting a child presenting at 10 who doesn't eat meat, who doesn't eat a lot of vegetables, it's going to be really difficult to get them to incorporate and completely do a 360. So it's both that short-term effect and, and cognitive effect of development, but secondary, it's the patterns of eating that can impact their health and their for their whole life, basically. So talking about um, some of the longer-term benefits, I mean, can illnesses, I mean, for example, like diabetes off the top of my head, be the result of bad nutrition from a young age, possibly? They could be. It's more likely to have a strong genetic component. But it's things like immunity and infection. You know, you have kids who are always sick. They're more likely to get sick than other kids. Well, absolutely, there's a link between their digestive health and dietary fibre and their immune function. That's really closely linked to iron intake, zinc intake. So how often they're likely to get sick, how well they're going to recover. And, yeah, over the course of, of a life, you know, getting into their 20s and 30s, that's when some of those inflammatory pathways that can lead you predisposed to heart issues or high cholesterol or high glucose levels, that the foundation has been there from a very early age. And we do see, you know, with one in four Aussie kids who are overweight and obese, we do see some of these lifestyle diseases a lot earlier, even in adolescence. So it sounds extreme and almost alarmist, but you're not you're not far off because, yes, 100%, it puts people who are more predisposed to that on that pathway from a very young age. So what, I guess, are some of the worst foods for children's brain development? On the flip side, as we were just saying. But anything ultra-processed. Now, an ultra-processed food is different to a processed food. So, for example, a frozen vegetables in the supermarket is a processed food. We're not consuming it straight out of the ground. It's been cut and and washed. That's still processed. That's frozen, yep. But an ultra-processed food are foods that no longer really look like food. They're cheese-flavoured chips, so they don't look like cheese and they don't look like a potato. <laughs> it's confectionery, it's fast food, it's cakes, it's biscuits, it's pastry, it's those centre aisles in the grocery store, the freezer section of pies and, and um, ice cream, and 
treats hot foods, discretionary foods, and we consume and our toddlers consume at least 30% of their energy intake from extra or discretionary foods. So it's a big problem here because when you're consuming those foods, not only are they giving you a lot of those processed fats and sugars, but they're not giving you any of the nutrients and they're displacing the the room for the nutrient-rich foods. Because kids don't need a lot of food, if they're filling up on junk and discretionary foods, there's no room for the veggies at the end of the day. They're not hungry for the meat. So not only are they not getting the key nutrients they need for optimal growth and development, they're also getting all the nasty things that they don't want, which can leave you prone to inflammatory disorders and, and other issues long term. So yeah, it's it's a good point. And the less of those foods in the diet of kids, ultimately the better. Um, and for all of us, it's the ultra-processed foods that have the close links to disease and, and health issues long-term. So what I'm hearing, and tell me if this is right, so it th- it's things like sugary soft drinks, um, refined carbohydrates, um, as you said, that are highly processed, grains, um, and e- even white, white flour as well, would you say, um, highly processed foods overall and high in trans unsaturated fats as well? 100%. Anything that you find that is coloured, you know, iced donuts and sausage rolls and banana breads that aren't made from homemade recipes, biscuits, lollies at the party, fast food if you get them a cheeky takeaway every so often, of course, soft drink, absolutely. Anything that that um, has, you know, as you said, those core ingredients of refined white flour, starches, added sugars, and often processed vegetable oils and fats, 100%. But what are some of the behavioural traits of children with a poor diet versus a child with a healthy one then? Um, this is controversial because people will say there's no strong association between eating patterns and behavioural issues. But I think anecdotally any parents or people who work with children will know that as soon as they've had processed food, they do tend to have that kind of energy hit. They're more irritable. They're less likely to go to sleep. Something I observe in my own family is whenever um, anyone has MSG and there is still added MSG in a number of kids' snack foods, so flavoured rice crackers, noodles, um, corn chips, a lot of them still have additive 621, which is with MSG. And they have a really restless sleep off the back of that. They're really, really thirsty. So it's those kind of um, broad behavioural characteristics that um, people will say they're having a difficult day or they're not settling or they're not concentrating. So I think people are aware that there's a direct link. Definitely with high sugar foods, things like fruit juice, they'll get an energy hit in that subsequent job as adults will about 20, 30 minutes later, makes them more difficult um, to be to concentrate when they're at school. So it's that kind of bouncing off the walls and then feeling really lethargic. For kids who have low levels of iron, um, they're offered lethargic. They don't want to get up in the morning. They're really irritable. They might have dark circles under the eye or even, you know, low fruit and veggie intake if that's linked to constipation and they're feeling t- sore and tired in the tummy, again, they'll be difficult because they're not feeling their best as we we are not um, when our tummies aren't working very well. So it's that sort of daily fluctuation in behaviour and attitude, attitude and energy that tends mm. to be um, clearly demonstrated when there's not a strong baseline diet of, of good, wholesome, whole foods. Interesting. Um, and on this, actually, I when preparing for today, I, I found a, a study that was released this week actually by the American Heart Association that found managing weight, uh, blood, blood pressure and cholesterol in children may also help protect their brain function later, uh, later on in life. So healthy food not only helps 
feed their brains, which is what your article is about. And we're just about to talk about that. So healthy food not only helps feed that part of their, their body and their brains to support their learning and their education in the short term, but it also seems like that it helps protect their brain function right throughout their whole life. So I'd love mm-hmm. to know just what your thoughts are on that. And there are very yeah. strong links between that highly, what we call pro-inflammatory diet and brain function and, and steering off conditions like Alzheimer's and dementia. And it's associated with blood flow. Because the more inflamed the body is, the more sticky the blood is and and often the narrowing of the arteries reduces blood flow. And so it's hypothesised that the more inflammation secondary to refined carbohydrates and sugar, the more likely it's going to affect cognitive functioning long-term. And then the the other side of that is when you're not getting the good fats, for example, things like your omega-3 fats, which naturally naturally help to reduce blood pressure and improve blood flow, you're not getting those either. So you're not getting any of the health-promoting foods and at the same time your body's working against you with those those extra Mm. processed ones. So I think we will learn more and more. We're already understanding the role of gut health when it comes to predicting a number of disease states. And indeed, you're right, I think with with, um, degenerative, neurodegenerative diseases, definitely there's a strong link between your underlying baseline diet um, and the health of your brain long-term. Yeah. Well, now for all the good stuff. Um, <laughs> we published your article to begin with titled Super Brain Foods for Busy Kids. Now, for someone who hasn't read the article yet, please tell us what it's about and, of course, what inspires you to write it. <laughs> well, I think parents are busy, so we often want the cheat sheet on what are the key things we've got to give these kids to tick the box on those nutrients. It's like when you're pregnant, you want to know that you're getting enough folate. And I think as a parent, there's de- definitely key nutrients and foods that provide those nutrients that I would absolutely be focused on to say, right, I know that they've got the really, really important stuff in an easy format because who's got time to be researching nutrients and different foods? I just want to know that if I can give the kid a serve of sushi each week and a couple of chops, I'm going to be on the right track. So it's about how do we you know, optimise those key nutrients? And as a dietitian, for example, what are the key foods and nutrients that I'm giving my kids above anything else just to tick the box? as a user-friendly guide for busy parents. Mm-hmm. And so what age uh, children are we talking about? You reference ages one to four earlier, but I mean, naturally, uh, the foods we feed a baby for their brain development are vastly different to those we feed a preschooler or a tween, as an example. So um, are, are these foods that we're discussing quite broad across sort of all age groups? Any, any child who's consuming a, a food-based diet as opposed to under the age of 12 months and, and getting their nutrients from breast milk or formula, I would say fits this category. So I'd say anywhere from the age of nine months to one to, say, teenage years. And the reason I would cut it off with around teenagers is that their nutrient requirements are quite different, particularly for boys. They're going to require a lot more energy, and in many cases they may require more processed foods just to get that in. But for that key primary school, preschool, a toddler, these are the, the key areas that I'd be really focused on to make sure that they're ticking the box on those and, and basically building those foundations to really strong eating habits that they'll then carry with them as they get older. Yes. Okay. Pauline, saying that then, we'd love to know what are your recommendations then on the best foods that could you know, positively impact a child's brain development, especially you know, when it comes to their cognitive development. And um, yeah, so what are the most important foods and, and why? <laughs> 
what are the, the brain superfoods? So well, I think we can't go past talking about the omega-3 rich foods. And when we talk about omega-3 rich foods, it does often come down to a focus on oily fish and in particular salmon, sardines, if anyone in the family likes them. Tuna to a lesser extent, it doesn't have anywhere as much omega-3 as, as fresh Atlantic salmon has. And the reason for that is just a single serve of, of salmon, so a small palm size. It's got more than, more than your upper daily recommended intake of those very, very special fats, which are so crucial when it comes to brain development and cognitive development in young children. And the good thing, what I find is that kids are more likely to enjoy salmon now as part of their diet. You know, kids, as we know, are fussy. They're often a little bit lazy when they've got to eat. So sometimes red meat is a problem. They don't like to chew. But for some reason, whether it's the, the colour, the texture, whether they're eating a lot more sushi, kids often will enjoy salmon, um, which can be quite expensive for mums and dads, but we're happy to have it because it's so nutrient rich. So whether you're including it in mixed foods as part of the family and making hamburger patties, using salmon or even tuna, whether you're cooking salmon fillets and crumbing it like a schnitzel uh, or even um if you are um, using it in sushi, I should say, and making your own sushi or buying sushi away from the home, I would try and get that into them at least a couple of times a week. I try and feed my kids and have done since they were, you know, six months um, salmon two or three times a week. So it really is a real superfood in that space. But but equally. So important then, like why? Because you don't get those omega-3 fats from really any other foods. Uh-huh. So omega-3, we need a certain amount to help reduce inflammation in the body, to specifically help with that brain development. It's linked to better language function, cognitive function, memory, but there's just no other foods that have anywhere near as much as salmon does. So, um, you know, see, all see if it has a little bit, but just nowhere near that concentration. And because kids like it, it's a really easy way to get and tick the box on omega-3s. And then, but I would also say equally as important is the lean red meat for, for red meat eating families, because I think the shift for many of us towards more plant-based eating or even eating more fish is great. But let's not forget that, that the richest sources of iron is in lean red meat and we need it a few times a week to get well-absorbed iron, which is also crucial for brain development and particularly in young children. Now, we see iron deficiency often in children and mothers and it's because people are trying to be healthy and they may not enjoy red meat or they think it's not healthy, but I would say it's equally as important. So I sort of focus that the kids' diets around either omega-3 rich fish or the lean red meat and whether it's a small serve of mince in a, a baby nachos or burrito bowl, whether it's hamburger patties using lean meat or even lean sausages, they don't need a lot, but they need it two or three times a week to get that really well-absorbed iron. And you'll be really on the right track with both of those key nutrients by focusing on meals around those through the week. Well, you just referenced iron um, as being a nutrient that a lot of children don't get enough of, but is there any others? Um, and what are some of those key nutrients that kids don't get enough of? Yeah, it's it's interesting. They, they don't get anywhere near enough dietary fibre. Um, and that's why they're often constipated, not going to the bathroom very often, and often it leads into that more fussy eating where they're not really keen to eat veggies because the richest source of dietary fibre is in, in fresh fruit, yes, but in particular vegetables and cooked vegetables. So as soon as kids are not eating vegetables or not having brown bread, it, it tends to be low in the fibre intake, and, and they need their age in grams of fibre plus five. So if they're 10, they need 15 grams of fibre, um, if they're five, they need 10 grams of fibre. So 
it's not um, huge amounts, but they do need it regularly and every day. So to get enough dietary fiber, you really want to be choosing where possible a, a whole grain or wholemeal bread or worst case, if they won't have that, a high fiber white. You want to be aiming for a couple of pieces of fruit and at least a couple of serves of veggies each day just to make sure that they're getting used to having those foods as part of their regular diet, but they're also getting that, that uh, dietary fiber. So for, for kids who aren't big veggie eaters, little tricks to it are including the kale or the spinach in a green juice in the morning if they're a juice fan and um, if they're snacking on baby tomatoes or carrots or cucumbers with the skin on when they're at school putting a, a, a pile of veggies to snack on before dinner because they'll often kind of munch without really realizing it making potato mash but putting in some extra cauliflower um, or zucchini grated just to put it through the diet um, I myself make a lot of veggie chips for the kids so sweet potato um, zucchini, any of those with, with tons of extra virgin olive oil so they like it and it tastes good um, because I think that's the key thing. You want the veggies to be appealing so they don't learn that veggies don't taste nice because we teach them that as well. You know, we never say, you know, you must eat your ice cream, but we always say you must eat those vegetables. And so we kind of, um, without realising it, don't talk about them in a positive way, but just filtering them through the diet through the whole day um, so they get used to having them as an, as an option. So if I'm offering my kids a snack after school, I'll say, do you want carrot or apple? I'll always just put it in there. And now they, they often ask for it or baby tomatoes, which are expensive. <laughs> they can blow out the budget. But if I put a bit of salt on them and my kids love tomatoes and salt. Now, we could spend hours talking about why the salt's not good, but I'll hours, spend hours arguing back that just having the tomatoes is worth it. So don't be scared to make the veggies taste good just so they eat them and they enjoy them. So what about fussy kids? And you did reference that a little bit earlier on also. I mean, how can parents, um, I guess, manage sort of picky eaters? Um, yeah, overall, this is another whole subject for another whole day and we've got experts <laughs> in this space too. But in particular, you know, I mean, what are your tips for, for parents that have kids that are maybe, um, you know, averse to, to trying new flavours and, and food experiences and textures and things like that? The thing with behaviours in kids and particularly small children is the behaviour we focus on will continue. So if you focus on the fussy eating, you're reinforcing it. So the more you talk about what they're not eating, the less likely they are to eat it. So I would shift the focus completely to what they do eat and just try and identify a couple of, of options in each category that they will have. So if you're looking and saying, look, I've got a fussy kid who doesn't eat any vegetables, I would just be looking for one or two and say, well, will they have sweet potato? Will they have, you know, potato as a starting point? Will they have frozen peas? Just try and identify one or two and just focus on those. Now, of course, you do get those extreme examples where they'll have none, but in more cases than not, they'll fit in the middle of the curve and they'll have one or two and then just focus and then eventually building on it. And it will really depend on the age of the child because if it's a younger child, you're going to have much, and I say younger, under five, you're going to have much more success in um, incentives, you know, having them in different ways if they go to Nana's house and just yep. slipping it in over time. You know, my kids never ate tomatoes for me. They have one night with their father, he puts salt on them, and now they're the biggest tomato eaters ever. Like, you know, and it's the novel aspect with small children. As they get older, it's going to be harder and harder. 
And so sometimes you better to not talk about it at all. And then when they're feeling motivated or want something and you can use things like incentives to use computer time or iPad time or they want something, that might be the time to do it when you actually cognitively are on board with the change. But begging them, conjoling them, bribing them, it's not ever going to work long term because it's not acting on their motivation to do it and it's more a behavioural management strategy over you. So I'd say the less you talk about it, the better. But keep including them in the family meal keep putting them on there, you know, and, and saying that's just what we have or trying to put them out so they slip in, you know, that bowl of salad on the table before dinner, um, making veggie chips, you know, doing smoothies with them in, at fitting them into meals, the family meals and not making a big deal of it. There's lots of different ways that you can get at least a serve or two um, going in just to tick the boxes on those key nutrients and in particular dietary fibre if their tummy's not great. Yeah. And what about nuts and kids? I mean, should... I mean, obviously, children with nut allergies, uh, obviously, that's a, a clear answer there. But um, generally, for children that don't have allergies, um, uh, should they be eating or avoiding them in general? Nuts are a, a real superfood. Um, all different nuts are good for us, whether it's walnuts, whether it's almonds, whether it's macadamias. They've got slightly different nutrients in them, but overall, they're still a serve of good fat. They're still those anti-inflammatory fats. Now, the issue I think that we would all agree on is that because we're so petrified of nut allergies, and for those people dealing with a terrible nut allergy, of course, it's a it's a big cause for concern. But for families who don't have allergy, it's a it's a big shame that the kids aren't having nuts because, again, if they don't learn to eat them at a young age, they're less likely to ever really incorporate them into the diet. So if you're in a family who can safely eat nuts, I would absolutely encourage regular consumption of them, whether it's via nut-based snack bars, whether it's via nut, 100% nut spreads. There's a big range of nut spreads out there. Um, Mavers is one of the brands I'm an ambassador for, and they've got a whole range of nut spreads, including chocolate nut spreads, which have no added salt, no added sugar, and they're a great thing for kids to use as a dipping sauce or a spread. And again, a serve of nuts a day is good for all Australians, and yet fewer than one in 10 Aussies get the recommended serves of nut, nuts each day. So they can be a really nutrient-rich addition um, and one that, you know, offering a, a spread on their crackers in the afternoon or on their toast in the morning or as a dipping sauce with veggies in the afternoon on a snack plate is a great way to make other healthy foods taste great with extra flavour and incorporate a serve of those really good fats into their day. And it's not a huge serve. You know, they only need about 10 nuts or about a tablespoon. So you don't need a lot of it, but it is really good stuff if you get it in. And, again, there's a growing range of nut snacks that are really great for kids in supermarket. Um, if sort of giving them whole nuts when they're little is a bit bit overwhelming, you can incorporate into snack bars, mini snack bars, your own baking. Um, if you're making a, a banana bread, you can always do a walnut banana bread or peanut butter banana bread or using it as as one of those dippers are, are all great options. Um, and just speaking... Um also about the balance of food how do you suggest parents should be balancing meat versus chicken versus fish um I guess on a weekly basis like what's that balance and what does it look like and what should it look I like, like? that because it makes it in real terms because we all cook meals each night and we're all balancing out the food I think if I look at myself to tick the box on those nutrients I would go sort of the oily fish at least twice so a salmon meal twice and then you can back it up maybe with sushi for lunch one day um, and then I would do red meat at least twice, so a lean, a chop, lean chop or some mince-based dish. So maybe fish twice, lean meat three, maybe chicken once. Not that I don't like chicken, I do, 
but it just doesn't have the density of nutrition that the oily fish or the red meat does. And I know kids love it, but if we can shift them over a little bit from chicken to to the salmon or red meat, that's better for them nutritionally. And then, you know, a plant-based meal, maybe a vegetarian or a takeaway. So, you know, if I think what I do, I usually do salmon twice, red meat twice, maybe chicken once a week or fortnight, and then we usually have takeaway or eat out. So that's a rough guide. Um, for a family and I think that can work out affordability wise too because you've got to budget things you know so don't be scared to use cheaper things like mints or even tin salmon to make salmon patties or um, sushi because obviously you've got to be aware of the food budget and you can't be spending you know 20 30 dollars of protein each meal when you're feeding a family of four so if you can try and get it down to that 10 dollars serve there's lots of options and how about supplements as well? Because we, we see this, of course, marketed to us by so many different um, companies, uh, things like fish supplements and those types of things. What are your thoughts uh, where, for whatever reason, um, you know, a lot of children themselves are, are choosing to be vegetarian uh, as well without being prompted from their family. Um, so I just want to know from your perspective, what are your thoughts on, on those? Rach, because it's a big growth area and I have regularly families coming in and saying that their 8 or 10-year-old is opting to be vegetarian and I think you have to respect people's rights and wishes, particularly as they get older. I think as a parent, my biggest concern or even as a, a dietitian is people who are what I call sporadic meat eaters. So they might have a vegetarian diet most of the time but eat meat once a week and that's where we run into problems because the body is used to absorbing the meat-based iron or um, omega-3 in the case of fish and then doesn't get enough of it each week. So vegetarians, pure vegetarians can be really, really healthy as long as a protein-rich food with some iron is included at every meal. So that would mean making sure that every meal had some sort of legume like lentils or kidney beans egg base or tofu or a a vegetarian protein replacer and that will make sure they're getting enough protein but also nutrients like iron so Mm. i think i have no issue with it it's very easy to balance and in some cases vegetarians diets can be better balanced overall because they're having that protein source at each of their meals so there's no issue there i think in terms of supplementation um if you've got a child who doesn't eat any fish and you know you've got Buckley's of getting salmon, I probably would consider an omega-3 supplement, and there are some child-friendly ones out there. Um, I would only consider supplementing with iron on doctor's recommendations because it's not something you should have more of. More is not better. So you'd want to make sure the child actually had low iron before you considered using an iron supplement. But in the case of omega-3, definitely, if you've got a non-fish eater or or a strict vegetarian, that's probably not a bad one just to give them a little bit more of those good fats. And the other trick is um, using grain breads or seed snacks, things that are made from pumpkin seeds or, or the nut spreads is a way of getting some of those good fats they're not as strong or as as powerful as the omega-3s but they're still very good Mm. so for vegetarians the seeds and the nuts are really important to give them some of those good fats and how about time of day as well with taking uh, supplements? I've been, uh, I was told many years ago, um, just from an old colleague who had been to a nutritionist, you'd be able to tell me, of course, this is true or, or, or not, but um, speaking about parents, just first of all, that we shouldn't be taking any of our supplements with coffee in the morning because coffee being a diuretic and flushing it out of our system and our body doesn't absorb all of the nutrients from the supplement, multivitamin, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, so, I mean, A, is that correct? And B, <laughs> um, with regard to our children and and uh, if they are taking supplements themselves, is it better to wait to, to dinner time that they have more uh, food in their tummy perhaps? Um, 
than taking it in the morning? It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of right. You know, the tea and coffee does inhibit absorption of some nutrients. So, yes, I would say generally the, the two ones I would say is that if you're having vitamin D supplements, which are quite common, particularly for adults, you want to consume them with food and with fat because it is a fat-soluble vitamin. So if you have it with two pieces of plain toast, it won't absorb very well. So mm. if you're having vitamin D, I'd say have it in the morning, but have it with some eggs or some full-fat yogurt or something that's got some fat in it. But for, for things like a general multi, omega-3 and iron supplement, yes, I would usually take those kind of things at night before bed. Um, you've got the nutrients from the dinner, but it's usually enough time to sort of allow space. And then overnight is when the body does a lot of healing. So it, it I couldn't give you the data on it, um, but I would say theoretically it would make sense to do that at night time um, just for absorption and um, when the body's doing a lot of its healing and repair work. Mm-hmm. So, but right. as I say to clients as well, the best time to take t- supplements or tablets is when you remember to take them. <laughs> so taking them at some point is going to be better than not. So it also comes down to when you're going to remember to do it. Yeah. I also find like I get a spike in energy when I take a supplement. So I try not to take it too late just before I go to bed because then and I'm so they're the like- Yeah. So the, so a lot of supplements are packed full of B group vitamins because they're relatively cheap. We don't really need them, but they will give you an energy hit. So if it's a general multivitamin for that reason, you may be better in the morning as opposed to pure iron or um, omega-3, which I'd probably tend to take at night also so that it repeat on you. Yep. Cool. And so we've spoken all about um, meat and, and proteins. I'd just love to just establish um, about fruit um, in particular. Is there any particular fruit that is good for children's brain development in particular? Well, of all the research of all fruits, it's the berries that come out tops when it's the antioxidant content and cognitive function, in particular blueberries. They're very, very high in antioxidants. So anything that's brightly coloured, particularly moving into winter, is going to be really good choices when it comes to fruit. So things like oranges, mandarins, kiwi fruit, and any kind of berries is a great daily addition. And again, you know, kids need a fruit piece of fruit or two a day. They can absolutely have too much fruit. So it's not a matter of eat as much fruit as you like, as opposed to vegetables where it is eat as much vegetable as you like. So that's a, a trick as well, because sometimes you'll have kids who eat multiple pieces of fruit, but the issue is they're not getting the nutrients and fruits also got fruit sugar in it. So, so they can have too much. So I'd say at most a couple of pieces a day. And then the brighter the colour, the better. So, you know, it's not better they eat 40 grapes, you know, and they get an upset stomach. It doesn't have the nutrients of things like berries and oranges. So definitely steer them towards the brighter coloured ones, particularly going into winter. Cool. Well, um, this has been a really great chat. If you were to summarise your key messages for anyone watching and listening, what would they be? Is that early childhood food programming is crucially important when it comes to both brain development and function, but also developing eating patterns that will last a lifetime. And there's a number of key nutrients to focus on, primarily um, high quality iron, which is found in lean red meat for meat eaters, omega-3 fats, which is found in oily fish, essential um, fats, which are found in serves of nuts and and more brightly coloured fresh fruits and vegetables. And these form the platform of good foundation to nutrition, particularly for young children. Awesome. And if parents have got any questions and would love to reach out to you, whereabouts can they find you? I am spending more and more time on Instagram. <laughs> um, so questions come through really easily on there. I have a regular Q&A each week. So it's Susie Burrell Dietitian, but I also have Facebook. So I'd love for parents to get in touch if they're interested and, and ask questions because it's often questions a lot of other parents have too. And if we share the answers, we all learn. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Susie. Can't wait for another chat again in the future. Until then, take care. See ya. Thank you, Rach, so much. 
I'm Rachel Monteleone and you've been listening to Kittypedia, the podcast. You can have full access to Kittypedia by visiting our website at kittypedia.com.au or following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. We're all here to help make the world a better place for our children and for generations to come. You can start today by helping us reach other parents by going to Apple Podcast, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Thank you for listening and be sure to give my love to the kids.